remain standing. Let's read it together. If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word. The Gospel of John, chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a glorious morning it has been already, seeing your hand at work in the lives of so many. Father, we are, we are grateful. We are grateful for your grace. We are grateful for your Son. We are grateful for the power of the gospel that is been on display here this morning. God, we ask now that as we turn to the pages of Scripture and to the preaching of the Word, we ask that you would come and meet with us. Lord, we ask that you would speak through your Word and that your people would hear your voice. We ask that those who don't know you, Father, would have their eyes opened to the reality of who Christ is and their need of him. God, we ask most of all that your Son would be exalted in this place this morning and that you would receive glory from our time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. I hope your heart is full. Mine certainly is. You know, I, we don't do these often enough, but when we do, it is an amazing blessing just to hear the testimonies of God and the lives of so many different people young and old, from all different walks of life, from all different backgrounds. I hope you noticed this morning when looking at our baptism candidates and our new members, the Lord saves people from all walks of life, of all ages, and it is incredible to see his, his grace on display. And the binding factor for everyone here this morning was one thing. It was Christ. It is Christ that brings together a people that otherwise would never be together. We are a blessed people, we who are in Christ. Well, I want to start this morning with a question, and it's a question that may seem like an obvious answer to us as Christians, but it is a question that has been puzzled over for millennia. It is this, is God knowable? Can the finite human mind truly know and understand the infinite God. 
Is it possible for creatures to truly comprehend the Creator? This is a question that philosophers and theologians have wrestled with throughout the ages, and the answer is not an easy one. For for this reason, many have come down on different sides of the fence on this issue. Now, when we look at Scripture, clearly we can see that Scripture affirms that God is, in fact, incomprehensible to the human mind. Listen to a few passages that make that clear. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 145.3 Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 147 Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint nor grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah 40, verse 28. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55. Behold, these are but a outskirts of his ways, and how small of a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job 26. And last, of course, Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who, who, who has been his counselor? The answer, no one. Clearly, the testimony of Scripture is that God, in the essence of who He is, is beyond comprehension to the human mind. Well, if that's the case, then can we truly know God? Is God knowable? Can we really comprehend His person and understand who He is? Can we understand what He is like? Well, we are going to see today in the person of Christ, the answer to that question is yes. Scripture emphatically declares that God is both simultaneously incomprehensible and at the same time knowable through Jesus Christ. Well, as we continue through our journey through John's gospel, we have now come to the beginning of of the hostility that is launched at Jesus early on in his ministry and will continue roughly for about two years until his murderous death. But it all begins here in the passage before us in a response to a healing that Jesus performed on the Sabbath. As a result of his merciful actions toward a man who was an invalid for 38 years, we are going to see that Jesus gets hit with two charges here from the Jewish leaders. That he is both the, a breaker of the Sabbath and that he is a blasphemer because he has made himself equal with God. And he responds to both of those charges with a divine defense, a defense of his divinity. And we're going to see that he does that in in two different ways. That's going to serve as our outline today. Two defenses to the charges that are issued at Jesus that shed light on his true identity. Christ claims for himself 
the prerogative of the Father, and he declares his essential unity with the Father. That's what we're going to be looking at. Showing himself, in fact, to be God. The reality is, we're going to see that Christ declares, that Scripture declares, that if you want to know what God is like, you look to the Son. You look to Jesus. If you see and understand Jesus, you see and understand God. This is why we must be a Christ-centered and Christ-pursuing people. It is through Him that we know God. So let's look how Jesus explains this. Let's look at His defense to these charges and explore what they tell us about God. Look at this starting in verse 16. It says, And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. So the first charge that is thrown at Jesus, the reason the persecutions began for Him, was because the Jews held Him to be a breaker of the fourth commandment, a breaker of the Sabbath which was seen and began in what took place in last week's passage. Obviously, with this verse beginning with the word and, we are picking up here at the conclusion of that story. So, just by way of reminder, or to get some of you up to speed who are not with us, last week we looked at the first 16 verses of chapter 5. And in this section, Jesus had returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish feasts. And upon arrival, he makes his way over to the pool of Bethesda, in which he finds an invalid man who had been that way for 38 years. And as a show of his power and a demonstration of who he is, Jesus heals this man just by the power of his voice, commanding him to rise and to take up his bed and to walk. The man is immediately and completely healed, from his infirmity, he took up his bed and he walked, all of which took place on the Sabbath, which John was very careful to notate in verse 9. So as this guy is walking away, carrying the bed that he'd been laying on for 38 years, he was called out by the Jews, the Pharisees, for breaking the Sabbath, for carrying his mat on the Sabbath day an action that was forbidden by the oral tradition of the rabbinic Jews as to how one was to keep the Sabbath. Well, knowing how serious that charge was, this guy immediately deflects and tells him that it was the man who healed him who told him to do it, which, at the time, he didn't even know who that was. He didn't even stop to ask Jesus his name. Afterward, Jesus found this man and issued him the solemn warning, Sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. A not-so-subtle reference to judgment in hell. And rather than responding in faith and in the fear of the Lord, like the Samaritan woman or the royal official, this guy responds differently. Look at verse 15. Look again at what, how he responded. It says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So rather than seeing Jesus for who he had shown himself to be through the power of his word and heeding the warning that he had given him, this guy goes to report Jesus to the authorities, which he already knew they were hostile about this situation. 
He figured out who the man was who healed him on the Sabbath, and he knew that the Jews were more interested in pursuing that infraction than they were the carrying around of his mat. So he reports him. Which brings us back to verse 16. All a result of, of what Jesus was doing, it says this, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So clearly, the way John has phrased this, this healing was just the beginning and only one example of the things that took place on the Sabbath. It appears like Jesus was doing this often, which of course that we know that he was from the record we have from the other three Gospels. Remember, the way John has written this, he is intentionally just highlighting selected events for his theological and thematic purposes as he moves his readers through the grand narrative and to chiefly reveal who Jesus is. That is what he is doing. But it was because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath that his persecution began. Jesus faced fierce opposition from the get-go. And we can see from this text that the Jewish leadership never even attempted to see who Jesus really is. They never even gave a fair assessment of the signs that he was performing in order to try to ascertain what these things might mean. They had made up their minds. And this healing of the 38-year invalid was a prime example even though it was a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, pointing to the fact that the God who saves had arrived, they were not interested in that healing at all. They didn't even want to consider it. Now, they did not deny it. You could not deny the miracles of Jesus. You never see anybody deny his miracles. His miracles were irrefutable. Jesus wasn't going around doing leg-lengthening tricks here. Jesus wasn't going around healing bad backs and migraine headaches. No, he was opening blind eyes and deaf ears. He was calling the lame man to get up and walk. Do you know how atrophied one's muscles would be after 38 years of laying there? And yet this man gets up and walks. It was an incredible miracle. Nobody could deny the power of what this man was doing. They didn't deny it. They just didn't consider its implications. Yet when the Jews questioned the man, they weren't, even, they weren't even interested in talking about that. They didn't want to talk about his healing. They only wanted to know, who told you to carry your mat on the Sabbath day? They were dull and blind to the reality that was right before them. And they were dead set on putting all of it in, to an end from the very beginning, and thus started the darkest and most evil plot in human history, which were the persecutions of the Creator. And what did that persecution look like? It looked like planning to kill him. It looked like trying to trap him in public dialogue. It looked like conspiring with one another to bring his ministry to an end. It looked like undermining him in public. It looked like attempting to persuade the crowds against him, and on and on. It was the spirit of the Antichrist working in these men 
from the beginning. But Jesus responds to this behavior. Look, what he, look, look at verse 17. It says, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Notice it says that Jesus answered them, though there's no recorded dialogue on their part. They didn't actually say anything here. What did he respond to? Well, he's answering their persecutions for his so-called Sabbath violations. And his answer is actually quite jarring to a Jew. My father is working until now, and I am working. This answer, no doubt, caused a visceral response in these leaders. Now, on the face of it, it doesn't seem like much of an explanation. I mean, he just says, my father's working and I'm working. What's the problem there? Well, actually, this is a loaded statement, and the Jews knew it. There's two massive issues with the response in the eyes of the Jews. First was his justification for working on the Sabbath. Notice he doesn't try to defend or explain what he did and why it wasn't a violation of the law. Rather, he just goes right after the heart of the matter. My father's working and I am working. Now, when he says my father is working, he is actually playing off an understood principle of the Jewish rabbis of the day. There was a discussion among them as to what it meant for God to rest on the Sabbath. When looking at the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 2, it says that on the seventh day, God had completed his creative work, and as a result, he rested from his work. When Moses issues the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, in the giving of the law, that man is to rest from his labors, he grounds it in God's rest that took place at creation. Now, rabbis rightly looked at this and puzzled to some degree over whether or not God could actually cease from all of his activities. And they came to the conclusion that, no, it would be impossible for God to cease from all of his activity because he is continually upholding the universe. The universe does not run on its own. God is intimately involved in every aspect of creation. And that is absolutely true. God is involved in every aspect of creation. He did not just wind this world up and sit back and let it run. We are not deists, and neither were the Jews. Deists are those who believe, yes, there is a God who set this world on its course, but he's not involved. No, that is not true at all. God is in the midst of everything in this world. One of the places we see this very clearly in the Old Testament is in God's rebuke to Job, in Job 38. God said this to Job, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth the lightnings that they may go and say, here we are? Can you guide the bear with its children? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry out to God for help 
and wander about for lack of food. Anyone who would dare say that God is not here or not involved with creation has no idea what they're talking about. God is intimately involved in every aspect of creation. As Paul said in the book of Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. Now we may have scientific explanations for the way the world works, which are great and worth marveling at, but behind it all is a sovereign God who designed it in such a way that his providential hand is guiding it at all times. God is involved. And if he were to cease from his work at any moment, then the universe would in fact cease to be. And the Jews rightly understood this. They had this discussion talking about the Sabbath. So they concluded that God did indeed work on the Sabbath. God gets a pass for the Jews. He had to. He he rested from his creative work. Yes, absolutely. That's what Genesis says. But his sustaining work of creating this or of upholding this world continues at all time. It must. And Jesus is playing off of that. He is playing off of their discussion, what they knew and taught to be true. My Father is working until now, as you know. But then the shocking part is that he says, and I am working. Jesus claims for himself the same prerogative as the Father, making himself equal to the Father. Now, there's a couple of ways that this is true. First is in the upholding of all things. That is not only the Father's work, the Father's prerogative, but He accomplishes that through the Son. As the writer of Hebrews put it, speaking of Christ, He said, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. So in this moment, while he is here bodily form, retorting to these Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him, he's also sustaining them and everything else around them. If Christ were to cease working, everything would cease to be. That's true for him too. But beyond that, I think there's a work here that Jesus has in mind, both his and the Father's, that goes beyond just the sustaining work that is going on at all times. He speaks of another divine work that has been at play since before creation, and that is the work of redemption. The work of redemption, the work of God making a people for himself which has been ordained since the foundation of the world. It is the work that God is continually working in the world and has been and will be at all times. It's the very reason why creation exists in the first place. It is the work that will supremely reveal the glory of God to all of creation, and it is everything. It is where everything is heading. It is what everything is for. And the Father is always working towards that end, as is Christ. And this divine work is the work that Christ was doing on the Sabbath. 
This is no violation of the Sabbath. This was no violation of the fourth commandment. This did not break the fourth commandment because it transcends and it supersedes the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man. Now certainly as a man, in his earthly labors, Christ never failed to observe the Sabbath. But in his divine work, it goes beyond the Sabbath because Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath, as it says in Matthew and Mark, Mark chapter 2. And even the Sabbath itself, when you think about it, the Sabbath itself was created by Christ for this same final purpose of redemption. It was created by Him to foreshadow the redemptive rest that is coming for all of us. We know that from Hebrews chapter 4. So quite ironically, Sabbath rest was working towards redemption. So in working towards redemption, Christ is working in keeping with the same purposes for which the Sabbath exists. This was no violation of the Sabbath at all. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now that was the first issue that the leaders would have taken with this short statement. But the second was this use of the term, my father. He said this once before to the Jews back in his cleansing of the temple, back in John chapter 2, when he told them, do not make my father's house a house of trade. But there he was talking to those who were, the, who were selling pigeons. Here he says it directly to Jewish leadership. And the implications register. They get it. They understand what he is saying. What particularly would have been strange for them is this singular possessive pronoun, my. He, had he said, our father, they would not have taken issue with that. The term father is not used very often in the Old Testament, but God was understood to be the father of Israel. You see this going all the way back to Exodus. The Lord said to Pharaoh that Israel was my, is my firstborn son. Then in Deuteronomy in chapter 1, God is said to have carried Israel as a father carries his son. In chapter 8, God is said to have disciplined Israel as a father disciplines his son. And then in Deuteronomy 32, Moses explicitly calls him father when he said this. He said, Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and established you? So this language was understood by the Jews. The fatherhood of God was not a foreign concept to them at all. He was the father of the nation of Israel. And had Jesus said, our father, there would have been no issue with that language. None at all. But he doesn't say our father. He personalizes it. He says, my father. Sing signaling that he, that his sonship is altogether unique. This is not a sonship that he shared with anyone else. This was not, the father was his father in such a way that was not true for anyone else. This father-son relationship was not one of an adopted origin like it was with Israel, but rather it was an ontological reality, meaning it is the essence of who Christ is. He is the son by nature. 
He is the Son by His very being. That is who He is. He is the only unique Son. And if this is true, then that means that He is of the same essence as God the Father. A mind-blowing claim for these Jews to hear. So Christ's first defense to the persecution he was facing was a singular statement with massive implications. My father is working till now, and I am working. He declared the father to be his father uniquely by nature, and he declared that he has the same prerogative and privilege as God to be working on the Sabbath. And they pick up on that. They understand what he is saying, which leads to the second charge. Look at verse 18 says this, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. You see, they totally get it. They understand the implications of what he was saying. But rather than believe those implications as attested to by the signs that he was performing, rather they come to the conclusion that this was blasphemy. They concluded that he was a Sabbath-breaking blasphemer. Now, just for clarity, both of these charges were actually technically false. Jesus was not violating the Sabbath, as we discussed, nor was he making himself equal with God. He is equal with God. He's not making himself anything. He's just declaring reality. But because they viewed him as a mere man and did not believe his words nor his works, they persecuted him for this. And not only were they persecuting him, but they were plotting to kill him. From the get-go, from the very beginning, they wanted him dead. They wanted to murder the one for whom they exist. They wanted to take the life from the one who is life and is the one who gave them life. Words cannot describe how, how evil this truly is. It's hard, it's hard for us to even conceptualize or understand this. This is the pinnacle of all evil desires that have ever been conjured up in the heart of man. The desire to murder the Lord of glory. And Jesus responds to those desires, which in and of itself is just grace. The fact that he would even respond to their murderous intent rather than just judging them on the spot. And he does so by revealing more of himself rather than just a swift rebuke or apathy towards their behavior. Jesus explains who he is to them. There are two things that you cannot exaggerate right here. The extent of the evil in the heart of man and the extent of grace in the heart of Christ. But we should not, we should be careful not to just marvel at the evil of those people. We should marvel at this, but we should marvel at the fact that the human heart, our hearts are capable of this. They are us. If there's anything that we have seen throughout this gospel, it is the dullness of every human heart apart from the grace of God. 
As Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There is nothing more deceitful than the heart of humanity, of us. It is desperately sick. And here we get a glimpse of the preeminent illustration of that reality. And that the heart of man, when faced with its own maker, seeks to kill him. How desperately we all need grace. And yet, in the face of this deepest, darkest possible evil, Christ responds with a gracious self-disclosure, revealing who he is. And this is telling. It is significant that Jesus sees what they are accusing him of, making himself equal with God, and he doesn't try to put an end to it. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 that's, that's not what I meant. That's not what I was saying at all, guys. No, not at all. Not only does he allow the charge to stand as it is, but he deepens it, and he pushes it further, and he brings clarity to its reality. You see, this whole monologue, this discourse that we're about to begin, which is contained in the verses 19, goes all the way to 47, all of it is a response to the desire for his murder by the Jewish leaders for making himself equal with God. And all of it is a revealing of who he is as God. And this is a remarkable passage. J.C. Ryle said of this discourse, he said, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship, as we find in this discourse, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. And it truly is. This discourse is often not remembered as well as John 6 or John 8 or John 10. But when it comes to Christ's self-revelation, this actually surpasses them all. Now, those three categories that Ryle just listed out really capture the structure of this well. His own unity with the Father, His divine commission and authority, and the proofs of His Messiahship. As we finish up today, we're going to just touch on the opening words of this discourse dealing with the unity with his Father. And we will cover the rest in the coming weeks. But this subject alone begins to push our finite minds beyond what we are able to comprehend. The triune nature of God is the most glorious and at the same time the most mysterious doctrine in all of Holy Scripture. But Jesus gives us some insight into this doctrine here. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus begins this whole section with this solemn preface of truly, truly, bringing weight and gravity to what he is about to say. Notice first here Christ's intentionality to both maintain the distinction between the Father and the Son, but also to emphasize their unity. 
The Father and Son are distinct in their person. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. As we saw in the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Son, in His own right, is a pre-existent being from eternity past alongside the Father. And it is the Son who came into this world. The Word was made flesh. And the Son takes upon Himself unique titles that belong to His person alone, showing His distinction from the Father. Titles such as the Lamb of God, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Prophet greater than Moses, the King of Israel, the Messiah, the Christ, and on and on. That is who He is, totally unique to His person as the Son. The Son and the Father are not the same. And yet, in His relationship with the Father, there is both order and unity. The Son shows Himself here to be functionally subordinate to His Father. As we, will, as we have seen and we will continue to see throughout this book, in His earthly ministry... Jesus constantly declares that He had come to carry out the Father's will. Now, that does not mean that Jesus was acting contrary to His will, nor does that mean that He was just robotic in all of His actions. No, actually, it was His will to do the Father's will. So all that His Father had willed for Him to do, He had willed to carry it out. He was functioning as the perfect, obedient son, the obedient son that Israel never was. But more than just obedience, there is an essential unity between them. When he says that the son can do nothing of his own accord, he is saying that the works that he is doing are the father's works, that he is the agent of the father. He is, in fact, saying the Father is working through him. All that he does is only that which he sees the Father doing, and whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. This means that the Son, at all times and all places, dwelt in perfect and continual fellowship with the Father and carried out all that he saw him doing. It was an uninterrupted communion between the two of them. And everything the Son did was what the Father was doing. So in context, that means that the healing of this 38-year invalid was the Father's works, was the Father working through the Son. Jesus is declaring to them, to these Jews, that what they just witnessed and what they are raging against is the work of the Father. This is how the Father works in the world, through His Son. The Son is the working agent of the Father. Again, we saw this in chapter 1 with regards to creation in the prologue in verse 3. John said this, speaking of Christ, he said, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That means when you're reading Genesis You're not just reading about the work of the Father. You are reading the Father in His work of creation, creating through the Son with the presence of the Spirit over all things. It was a triune endeavor. 
with the Son being the agent of the Father. Well, the same is true here in Jesus' ministry. Everything he does is a carrying out of the Father's will with the presence of the Spirit dwelling and empowering him from within. It is a triune endeavor that we are marveling at when we are looking at the pages of Scripture and witnessing the ministry of Christ. The Father working through his Son as his agent in creation. That's why this goes way beyond just mere obedience. Yes, it was obedience on the part of the Son. But beyond that, His works are rooted in their essential unity. It is impossible for the Son to do something independent of the Father because they are one. Yes, they are distinct in person, but one in essence. There is only one God. This is why... Jesus not only took on titles unique to his person, but was also willing to take on titles that belong to God alone, such as the great I am, the tetragrammaton from Exodus chapter 3, where he takes that on in John chapter 8. Or when Thomas bowed down before him in worship in John chapter 20 and explicitly said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus received that worship That would be blasphemy for anybody else. But he is God the Son. And God the Son cannot act independent of God the Father because they are one. But then Christ shows what is the grounding of this unity. Look at verse 20. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. The unity between the Father and the Son is one of love. There is no greater love in existence than the love that the Father has for the Son. You may have heard it said, there's nothing like a mother's love. Well, yes, there is. There's something that goes way beyond that. And that is the father's love for his son. You see, the entire world exists on this foundation and for this purpose. The father's love for the son. You exist because of the father's love for the son. Your salvation is ultimately about The Father's love for the Son. The history of redemption is all about the Father's love for the Son. Everything is about the Father's love for the Son. And they exist in a reciprocal relationship of love that is beyond anything we have ever known or experienced. And in the relationship of love, the Father shows the Son all that He is doing. And the Son responds in love for His Father through His perfect obedience to Him. And it works in the symbiotic relationship of love between the Father and the Son. And what these guys witnessed in the signs that Christ performed was only a scratching of the surface of what the Father would do through His Son. He says, And greater works 
Then these will he show him. Why? For what purpose? So that you may marvel. Now the next nine verses unfold what he is talking about, which we will get into next week. And they are truly worthy to be marveled at in every way. But understand this. What Christ is essentially saying to these guys right here is the same thing he's going to say later on. He and the Father are one. He has the prerogative and the power to heal on the Sabbath because he is, in fact, equal with God. He is God. What he is saying here is that when you see his works, you see the works of the Father. As he said back in chapter 3, when you hear his words, you hear the words of the Father. As he will say to Philip in chapter 14, when you see him, you have seen the Father. All of this is rooted, every bit of it is rooted in what John said at the end of the prologue when he said, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You see, God came to reveal God. The Son came to reveal the Father. If you have seen Him, you have seen the Father. So back to our question. Is God knowable? Can the finite human mind truly know and understand the infinite God? Yes. Yes, we can. Can we comprehend the totality of his being? Never. Never in all of eternity will we do that. But can we know him? Yes, we can. If you want to know God, if you want to grow in your knowledge of God, if you want to understand his person and his character, if you want to know what he is like, then pursue Christ. Know Christ, read of Christ, meditate upon Christ, ponder over Christ, ponder over what he said and what he did, ponder over why he said what he said and why he did what he did. Know Christ and you will know God. Spend time in prayer, approaching the throne of God with boldness through Christ. Take his word seriously and live by it. This is why we are saved. This is what we are to be about. As scripture says in Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. The only thing worthy of boasting about is that you know God. Because this is the essence of eternal life. This is the essence of what it means to be saved. This is what Jesus will say in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is why he did what he did. This is why he died. This is why he rose again. This is why he paid the penalty for sin for all who would believe in him, for any who would believe in him, that we may know him 
That's what salvation is all about, is knowing God. At the end of the day, church, make Christ your all in all. And as you do, as you do, ask for the Spirit's help in all of this, in your pursuit of Him. The fatal error of the Pharisees was not to see Christ for who He really is because of their dullness of heart and mind. If this theme of the dullness of the human heart has told us anything, it tells us that we ought to be bathing everything we do in prayer because we need the Spirit's help, especially our pursuit of spiritual things. If you want to know God, if you want to understand Christ, if you want to understand His Word, then you better be seeking Him in prayer. You need spiritual assistance to discern spiritual things. But that's why He gave you the Spirit. That is part of His purpose in your heart, is to reveal truth to you and to bear witness to Christ. Avail yourself of the gift of the Spirit that is in you, that you may know Christ and know God all the more. Long to know Him, church. Pray to know Him. God will bless those who ask. Let's pray. Father, You are the incomprehensible God. But praise be to You that You have made Yourself known through Your Son. Lord, we are humbled and grateful to have been brought into your fold and to have been given the privilege of salvation, the privilege of eternal life, the privilege of knowing God. Lord, I pray for all of us. I pray that you would help us to know your Son. Help us to see him and discern him all the more. Help us to put aside things that would keep us from following after him. Help us leave behind every weight, every sin that would turn us away from him. Help us to turn our eyes to Christ until that great day when we behold him face to face. Lord, we love you. We long for that day. And we ask for the grace of your spirit's activity in our hearts until that great day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.